If you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 on page 1209, we're, we're not starting a, a series of studies uh, in Hebrews on Sunday mornings. Um, you'll know we've just finished the spring term looking at the book of Colossians. We're going to start a, a new mini-series for the spring in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, today what we're doing actually is dropping into a series that's been running throughout this church year on Sunday evenings. Uh, we've been studying together there the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've reached chapter 11. Uh, when, I, when I read chapter 11 and just was reminded what a wonderful chapter it is, it's one of the great chapters in all of Scripture. I thought if it was possible, it might be nice to, to bring that to a bigger group, a wider audience in a morning service. So we have the opportunity to do that today. So we're going to look at the whole of Hebrews 11. We're not going to read the whole of the chapter, but Monty's going to lead us in our thinking over the whole chapter. So what we'll do instead is read a few verses at the start of the chapter and then another chunk at the end. So beginning at chapter 1 of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. If you jump then and flick the page and jump down to verse 32, we'll pick up there. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edges of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies." Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us that only together with us they would be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of God. They say that you should never meet your heroes. I know someone who was excited beyond words to see his favorite musician in a a local cafe, plucked up the courage to speak to him, only to be completely blanked and ignored. Or a friend who asked his childhood footballing idol for an autograph, only to be refused. My story is much more mundane, but equally embarrassing. As a student, one of the writers I had a prof- that had a profound influence on me and probably shaped my thinking and discipleship more than anyone else in those formative years uh, was John Stott. As a student, I was thrilled to be going to one of his conferences, and I'd rehearsed a hundred times what I might say to this very humble man should I ever meet him, uh, which of his books would I quote, uh, which theological question would I ask him, how might I impress him, what pearl of wisdom could I draw out from him that he had never put into print, and I could always say he said that to me. Sadly, we met sooner than expected in the lobby of the conference center. I didn't recognize him because at that stage I didn't know what he looked like. So my first words to this evangelical icon were, excuse me, are you meant to be here? Would you like a a name badge? To which he replied, I'm John Stott, pleased to meet you. Have you ever visited a hall of fame? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Country and Western, Football Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. And maybe as a kid dream and think, what would it be like to be up there? Rico Tice tells the story of how he was speaking in an English public school once. They had two rolls of honor at either side of the entrance hall. One was for past pupils who were Olympic gold medalists, and the other were for those who were Nobel Prize winners. If I'd been an old boy of that school, there would be no point in my going back to see if my name was up there. But what would it be like to be on one of those? The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, there is no doubt who their heroes were. These were Jewish Christians who understood that their newfound faith lay in direct continuity with the stories of their scriptures. Their heroes were people like David and Samuel and Gideon, Joshua, Moses, Jacob, and above all, Abraham. And Hebrews 11 reads like their hall of fame. The stories about these guys were legendary. They're the stuff that we teach our kids in Sunday club. You get a summary flavor of it from verse 32 onwards. 
defeating giants, slaughtering enemies, fighting lions, all good superhero adventure movie stuff. But why is it here? Why at the end of a book about their new faith, and after chapter upon chapter demonstrating how Jesus, their new hero, is better than anything that went before, why do we have this long list, probably the longest list in the Bible, about Old Testament heroes? Well, the theme of the chapter isn't hard to find. The word faith is right at the very start, and it occurs 28 times through the book. It's the cement that holds this chapter together. You won't find a better definition of faith anywhere than the succinct statement in verse 1 that Christoph began the service with. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then begins a whole load of examples of how these various undisputed heroes lived by faith. However, although they were clearly undisputed heroes, clearly undisputed heroes, if we take the time to look at the backstory of these characters, we find something a bit unsettling. They may have been heroes, but they were heroes with feet of clay. They were flawed heroes. I think the points should be coming up on the, on the screen. Flawed heroes. And flawed in ways much more serious than a, a moody pop star or an arrogant footballer. And this exposes a problem I think we suffer from too easily in the church. And it's perhaps maybe most evident in our children's ministry. There's a kid's song that we sing here quite often. It goes like this. Uh, maybe our Noah at the back could remind us of the Noah in the song. If we put up the lyrics, you'll rem you maybe remember this song that we, that we often sing. Just the next slide. Noah built the most enormous boat that kept the birds and animals afloat. Keep going. The Lord was good. The Lord was strong. Noah lived his life for him. Next slide. Moses led his people through the sea, taking them away from slavery. The Lord was good. The Lord was strong. Moses lived his life for him. David fought Goliath and he won. A humble shepherd boy became a king. The Lord was good. The Lord was strong. And David lived his life for him. Now, sorry if I'm going to irrevocably spoil this for you, but this is a slightly selective history. Maybe to be fair to the biblical narrative, we should change a few of the verses. How about this? Let's see. Noah had a little drunken blip. His kids came in and found him in the nip. <laughs> Keep going. The Lord was good. The Lord was strong, though Noah didn't always live for him. Next one. Jacob scammed his brother really bad, his uncle and his first wife and his dad. Next one. The Lord was good. The Lord was strong, though Jacob didn't always live for him. All together, boys and girls. Next one. <laughs> David liked to watch the girls undress. The rest of his life became a mess. The Lord was good, the Lord was strong, though David didn't always live for him. You get the picture. And that's before we even get to some of the more controversial characters in the text. Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter. Samson, you could have an entire song about him. And yet the beginning of this chapter says that these guys were commended. How come? Well, obviously not 
for sacrificing their daughters, committing adultery, lying, or getting drunk. Yes, they showed great faith at periodic episodes in their life, leaving their homeland even though they didn't know where they were going, winning battles, enduring flames, going up alone against the giant when nobody else would. But it's not even those great exploits, ultimately, that they're commended for. No, there's a particular theme through the whole chapter that ties together these characters that shows us why they were commended. It wasn't the faith that they displayed in individual events on their good days as opposed to their bad days. It was something deeper. They were commended because underneath all the mess, through all of the failure, they continued to believe in something greater, something better. They continued to look forward. They were visionary heroes. Now, remember the definition at the start what, what, about what faith is. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we don't see. And it's this hope that runs through the whole chapter, the assurance in what isn't seen. We got a little with Enoch and Noah living in spite of not knowing the details of what lay ahead, who believed God existed though they couldn't see him, who believed judgment was coming although there was no immediate sign of it. And, and when we get to Abraham, especially in verse 9, the emphasis is on promise on being an heir, on having an inheritance, all things that have to do with the future. A promise is something which comes good in the future. An inheritance is something that you get in the future. An heir is someone who has something better to look forward to in the future. Descendants, in verse 11, are in the future. Verse 10, verse 10 he, was, he was looking forward to a better city. Verse 14, looking forward to a different country. And then in verses 20 to 22, the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is passed over <coughs> with one comment each. You remember back earlier in the year, we took four months to look at Joseph. The writer here doesn't mention the premiership of Egypt, the saving from a famine, the faithfulness in prison, the dreams of Pharaoh. He obviously hadn't seen the musical. By faith, Joseph, when his end is near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Seriously, that's all he has to say about Joseph. But like Isaac, blessing his sons, about their future. Like Jacob blessing his grandsons, the writer emphasizes the end of Joseph's life, his determination not to have his body left in Egypt for when the promise came true and the Israelites got out. All of these guys, right to the end, kept looking forward. In spite of their failures, which were as obvious to themselves as much as to us, these guys continued to look forward. As I was reading this chapter again, I was struck about how, how strange it was that he begins his roll call back in verse 3 with creation. He frames the whole sweep of history with this fundamental issue of worldview. The thing which sets these people apart is that they understood the world in a certain way. 
that it had been created perfectly, but that it was now no longer the way it was meant to be. They were looking forward to a day when it would return to the way it was meant to be. And so many of the ways in which we may find ourselves out of sync with our peers or our culture have nothing to do with religion or biblical interpretation or whatever, much more fundamentally to do with the fact that we see the whole world, we see the whole of life in a radically different way. We have a different story, a different worldview. And it was that their lives were lived within a framework that was different from those around them. The battles, the giants, the lions, the flames, the floods, the wandering in deserts and hiding in holes in the ground were indicators of a world out of sync with its creator. But by faith, they believed in that creator, verse 3. And as a result, they ended up living their lives, verse 38, like the world wasn't worthy of them. It wasn't their home, verse 13. They were foreigners and strangers. And they looked forward to a new city designed and built by God. A new country. A new kingdom where the lions' mouths wouldn't need to be shut because they'd be lying down and playing with the lambs. That was their vision. And what these heroes are commended for is living with that vision before them. And yet even that is not the whole story. Because we see as the chapter comes to its conclusion that these weren't just visionary heroes. They were incomplete heroes. Even at their best, there was something missing. Verse 13, they did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Is that the promised land that he's referring to? Well, I don't think so, because David and Samuel are mentioned, and then implicitly Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the prophets and the later martyrs. And verse 39 says, none of these received what had been promised. None of them. The hall of fame is curiously incomplete. There is something else in mind. There are blank spaces on the wall. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And suddenly, we are in the story. Not only are we in it, but it doesn't make any sense without us. God's plan from creation was to do something pretty special. The lives of these superheroes were only a poor black and white image of what he had in store. Their story would only be seen in technicolor once we joined in. So have you ever wondered what it would be like to be in a hall of fame? Well, in learn Jesus' story, we are in it. You've ever looked at one of those roles of honor and thought, I'll never be up there? On Jesus' role, you are. You're on it. Actually, it's more than that. It's not just that we can be like them or that we can join their list. We actually change the list. We redefine 
what it is to be a hero. The script has changed. What we have is actually something better. These guys are not perfect without us. And what's happened to us? How come? Well, it's the message of the rest of Hebrews, isn't it? What Jesus Christ has done has changed the script forever. You see, Abraham may have left his home country to wander as a stranger in some new land, but Jesus went further. He came from his home to a place where he wasn't received, but rejected and despised and killed. Moses may have crossed the Red Sea and led the people out of temporary slavery in Egypt, but Jesus crossed the final river and led us out of the eternal slavery of our own rebellion against him. Daniel and his friends may have been miraculously spared death by mauling and fire, but when Jesus was faced with the furnace of hate and the jaws of death, there was no one to deliver him. And while Isaac was spared on the sacrificial altar to show that unlike the nations around, this is not how you go around appeasing a deity, Jesus was not spared, demonstrating that it is only by God bearing the sin and hatred and violence of the world himself that the price is paid and we can freely know the embrace of the Father. Folks, that is the something better. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the heroes of the past. And yet he says, the least of you in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Peter wrote that even angels longed to look into this. Wow. So I guess we continue to rewrite the song. You know how the chorus goes. If it comes up on the screen. Thank you, Lord. You are faithful. You are faithful. You are just the same when it comes to me, when it comes to me. Well, maybe it should be this. Thank you, thank you that you've done even better when it comes to me, when it comes to me. We're in a whole new world here, a whole new matrix. Have we grasped it? In the light of this, can we live by this faith with the confidence of what we hope for, with the assurance of what we can't see? Well, the first three verses of chapter 12 actually belong to this whole section. Chapter 11 begins about confidence and assurance, and then in chapter 12 with the application. Therefore, since we are surrounded by what? By such a list of inspirational characters? No by a cloud of witnesses. The image here is of all these superheroes being the spectators lining both sides of the upper Newton Arge Road, cheering on those who are currently in the race. The picture is not of us being the paying customers in a hall of fame, admiring the pictures on the wall and thinking, wouldn't it be great to be up there? But of each and every one of the heroes of the past taking their place on the grandstand of the arena to cheer on you and to cheer on me as we run the race now. They are not the pace setters that we have to try to keep up with. They're the cheerleaders. And with that in mind, and with this I'll close, he instructs us to do three things. They correspond to what we've just learned about the heroes. As they were flawed, so were we. But through the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the spiritual resources they never had. 
And so we throw off. We throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, like the athlete stripping off her or his tracksuit and getting ready to run, like the guys casting off their, their hoodies and their excess garments as they were running and flinging them over the railings of our church so that they would be unimpeded as they continue to run. Throw it off. Fling it away. Get rid of it. It's a powerful word, a merciless word. If there's anything hindering you running with this assurance, running with this confidence, throw it off. If it's a spiritual issue of doubt or stubbornness or pride or fear, throw it off. If it's a moral issue of temptation, throw it off. And let's not forget we're not running this alone. We're in it together. So what's true on the personal level is true on the corporate level. If there's anything hindering us running this race together, throw it off. And then secondly, as they were visionary, let us be visionary. Fix our eyes on Jesus. The heroes of the past couldn't see the finishing line. To them, it was way in the distance. We can see it. And waiting at the finishing line is Jesus the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the author and perfecter of our faith. He has run the race before us. He is sitting at the right hand of God waiting to welcome us. He did it, verse 2, for the joy set before him. Now, what if a significant part of that joy was to see his people return? What if a significant part of that joy was to watch you and me race? What if a significant part of that joy was to see you cross the line? Fix your eyes on him. And finally, finish the race. As they persevered, so must we. They were incomplete without the gospel that drives us. But although we have that fullness, we still must persevere. Verse 1, run with perseverance the race set before you. I've never even been tempted to run a marathon. And if any of you watch some of the guys today after they reach the 20-mile mark, you'll know why. Some who have done it have told me there are several points along the way when the urge to stop is overwhelming, particularly if you pick up a blister or a muscle strain. But they kept running. Inspired by the witnesses along the roadside, they kept running. Folks, there will be so many opportunities to grow weary, so many reasons to lose heart. For some it comes at college, for some it comes as family life takes over, for some it comes in the empty nest years when they start to question how much of their faith was real and how much was just for when the kids were around. Running the race through the morass of this world's brokenness is hard, hard work. But here we've been given an amazing history lesson from creation to new creation of how the God who made the world sustains his people through its brokenness until they're back to the way it was meant to be. Blind Isaac blessing his kids, old Jacob leaning on his staff blessing, dying Joseph making plans for his burial in accordance with the promise, sustained by God making it to the end, though at many, many times they could have given up. So please, don't be the Christian high schooler who wimps out at college to do what everybody else does. 
or the Christian student who wimps out after graduation to follow some careerist ambition or get married to the first person who comes along, or the Christian parents who wimp out at the empty nest stage because you'd rather put your feet up, or the Christian senior who thinks you have nothing left to offer. Remember Lindsay saying at my commissioning service, it's online back in September if you want. Those of you in your 70s who think you have nothing to offer, watch out, as well as your prayers, your wisdom, and your encouragement, the most vital gift you can give the church is to finish well. The next generations are watching how you finish, because if it's not real for you, then why should they devote any more of their time for it? Since we are surrounded by these witnesses, cheering us on, and since Jesus is at the finishing line, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Run, run, run. And the promise is that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Amen.